Everybody, this is Eric Krasno, and you are listening to the Plus One Podcast. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. Thanks to everybody that's been sharing the show with your friends and sending me messages. Wanted to remind everybody that you can follow us at K-R-A-Z Plus One. That's at Kras Plus One on Instagram. You can message us at Kras Plus One at gmail.com. We've been getting so many great suggestions for guests, and I've reached out to so many great musicians uh, that will be coming on the show. So make sure you stay in touch with us to see who's coming on next. I also want to give a shout out to Osiris Media. They helped me put this show together, but they also have a lot of other great content that you can find at OsirisPod.com. You may have heard, but we've launched the guest list, which is the premium version of the show, where you can get the shows ad-free. You can hear bonus episodes and all sorts of bonus content. You can find more information on that at OsirisPod.com. So my guest today on the show is someone who I'm a huge fan of. I've been following his music for a very, very long time. An incredible musician. And what he has done with the guitar and the bass and the combination of the two instruments is not only mind-blowing, but he's the only one that I know of to really do it. Um, And he's created custom instruments, the eight-string guitar, the seven-string guitar, and used them in a way that is completely his own. He's been part of so many great projects, legendary albums like D'Angelo's Voodoo. He's worked with John Mayer. He's made so many albums under his own name. Also been part of a group called TJ Kirk that played the music of James Brown and Roland Kirk. So we get into so much in this interview and we talk about a lot of his creative process and how he developed his style. Uh, Before we get into that, I'm going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. He's a composer, a producer, an arranger, and one of the most innovative guitarists of our time. I'd like to welcome today's plus one, Mr. Charlie Hunter. So I've been diving into your catalog. By the way, so many albums and so many records, and I've been a fan of you for so long. And uh, it's, it get brings, out of here. I'm serious, and, I, and so it brings back a lot of memories um, of you know listening to those early Charlie Hunter Trio records and the early Blue Note records. Um, but I want to go further back because what I didn't know is that your mom worked on guitars and w- repaired mm-hmm. guitars. Is that what initially brought guitar? into your world oh bro yeah i mean i was surrounded by guitar like wow okay and i didn't want i didn't want i didn't want to play guitar man because it was all around like my mom came up in that greenwich village kind of folk scene so the shit she was into and people she knew like mississippi john hurt reverend gary davis dave van ronk uh josh white people like that though she knew those people because she was a part of that scene and not just the music part but you know the act political activism as well um but we moved to berkeley we lived on a school bus you know i I was an actual hippie like which is for about five years which is quite different from oh, I know. I know. Yeah. what what people think a hippie is today it's it's a 
an entirely i think they would be quite shocked to find to if to spend a day in that kind of hippie universe at that time but right. you know you moved a lot you weren't staying in one place all the time so we moved from house to house or apartment but the place that i stayed at the longest we were always in the vicinity of a place called subway guitars yeah my mom worked there in the 70s repairing guitars there was the Subway guitars, and then about a mile from Subway guitars. So we'd hang out at Subway guitars until they kicked us out. Right. And then we'd walk to a place um, called Secondhand Guitars. And Secondhand Guitars was more like newer instruments, even though it was called Secondhand. And um, and Joe Satriani was the teacher in the back. Wow. Right? And so my high school was like, dude, you know, I was like the third string guy on the in the jazz band. And there was this guy named David Markowitz, who's this killer uh jazz guitar player a lot like kind of like a kind of like a joe pass kind of vibe you know oh, what i yeah, mean yeah, yeah. and uh then like he was like 16 or 17 comped his ass off like he did all the shit they wanted in like a big band and he's great and they said well you know what man if david can't make it because he was an orthodox guy they were like if david can't make it because of the sabbath or something you you will we'll, we'll give you a call and they knew damn well that they never played anything between friday sundown and saturday sundown <laughs> <laughs> that's funny man so were you into guys like that joe pass and like what were you listening to at that time when you were first picking up guitar like what was the guy that was really pulling you in and it, it made you want to play well, I mean, when I was younger, you know how it is. You just want to learn the songs you hear right. on the radio, you right. know? So right. I just wanted to learn all those songs like, you know, I mean, I remember seeing my guitar booklet from before Joe Satriani was my teacher and I was learning songs like, you can ring my bell right. and, uh, and, and the beat goes on and whatever was on the radio at the time, I wanted to know how to play those songs. Yeah, you know? yeah, of course. But of course, later on, I mean, I, I was really into old music. Um, and a lot of that had to do with my mom too, because she yeah. always had that music going on, but she was into the acoustic stuff. Yeah. And my, re my rebellion was basically listening to the same music she listened to, except the electric shit from 20 years after. Right, you know? right. So we were, I was into like guitar slim and, uh, uh, I like big, big Bill Brunsey. That wasn't electric. Um, and, and of course, you know, Freddie King and oh, Albert yeah. King and yeah. all that stuff. And, and then also like guys like Cliff Gallup and, um, uh, you know, Chuck Berry, all that fifties oh, yeah. kind of music. I was really into it. And, um, I don't know if, you know, my friend, Eric Dinwiddie, who was a great guitar player, he's a couple years older than me. He had a group that was real popular called the Uptones at the time. Oh, okay. And they were very regionally, very popular in the early eighties. And so I used to kind of go to their gigs and like set his shit up for him. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, at one time he said, man, you should come to this gig we're doing. It was like 1982 two or 1983 maybe he said uh we're opening for this guy called stevie ray vaughn i think you're gonna oh, really shit. like his playing and i remember going there with my a few of my friends and and we're like man this is bullshit man he can't play like guitar slim man you told me he played <laughs> wow. but then we heard him play then we heard him play and we were like holy fuck this is some shit and we ended up hanging out with him even wow, for, crazy. for a little bit you know he was really wow. really sweet um, but we had attitude like before he started playing because we thought we were the shit. You know right. what I mean? <laughs> of course. Yeah. But honestly, it wasn't until later that I I discovered all the music on my own, like at the public library, right? So I got yeah. like 
that's where I saw, oh, Joe Pass, this looks cool. Yeah, yeah. And it was a solo record, Joe Pass solo. Yes, yes I had that record, or you know, I think it's the same record, and it was, that that blew my mind. There's a number of them. I, I had one that was like the compilation or something that, that okay, had got like you. So, 30 tracks on it or something, and I used to just like, yeah. yeah. Oh, that was, they didn't have that. Uh, the ones that, the ones that they had like called like Virtuoso one, two, three. Yeah, but yeah. the one I got was like live at Long Beach City College. Oh, a that live shit, one. Yeah. Oh, see, okay. I yeah. think I had the Virtuoso uh, set or whatever. That yeah. That was like a bunch yeah. of, yeah. Well, oh, that shit cool. turned me, turned me on my ass, man. That, that record. Then I heard Tuck Andrus play and then that really turned me on my ass. And at that point I was yeah. a street musician, you right. know, in Europe right. I was a street musician. So. Right. So, and so what, were you playing uh bass as well as guitar, like in high school or, or did the whole bass technique develop later? You know, I did play bass because everybody played guitar so yeah. you'd have to play bass sometimes you'd have to play drums because there yeah. were too many guitar players you right, know right i was not good um but when i became a street musician i was just playing my guitar like in paris on the corners and and uh, i met these guys group of guys who were like the shit like that they became my friends they took me to zurich switzerland from paris to show me how oh, to wow. really busk right, right and um one dude was a was a roma guy from spain um, and another guy was was a really great jazz guitar player from New York City, okay, and uh, Canadian saxophone player, and uh, and they they had two guitar players that were really fucking good, and they knew the book. So like, well, we we need a bass player, and here's a bass, and ah. it was like a ply, it was a plywood K bass, oh yeah, upright bass with like action like that high, and I was just like, man, I only played bass like to fuck around i like never yeah. played bass and then all of a sudden i'm like oh i'm playing bass like 12 hours a day on the street bro my hands were like hamburger after the first wow. day like like literally they were so fucked up had you played upright before that at all or was it it was well a little bit a little bit on uh, like because there was always one around you right, know what right. i mean and so i could get around a little bit and i had good ears but and most everything we were playing was in first position anyway so it yeah. wasn't like there were not a lot of songs in a flat you know right. what i mean <laughs> right uh no i mean but then i i was doing it and i had to like get tape you know, but we oh, were yeah. making good money playing on the street. I, uh, after about, I don't know, f five or six months, I started playing with another group and, and I played guitar mm -hmm. um, in that band. Um, and we had a mouse amplifier. Oh, you know yeah, what I yeah, mean? Yeah. So when you, when you initially went over there and started busking, um, you were playing solo guitar. Am I correct? Yeah, solo guitar. And what were, what were you playing? Like, what stylistically were you playing kind of like jazz tunes? And you, were you doing the bass thing at that point? I was trying to. I yeah. mean, I thought like, oh, man, if I go take my fucking sad shit on the corner, everyone is going to love me because I've spent, you know, so long practicing. And a few people would stop. Even though I, I, I was pretty good for a 20-year-old guy on the corner, you yeah. know? Yeah, But, um... This is like 1987, but man, I was like playing jazz tunes and, and basically I was like basically copying that Joe Pass live at Long Beach City College record. That was my right. repertoire, basically. Right. And I, I was playing lots of Charlie Parker shit too. Like right. I would play like Tico Tico and all the bebop heads and right. shit like that and then kind of soul over that. And they're like, dude, you're really good, but nobody is going to stop to hear that shit. Right. Um, 
you got to play in a band, you got to, and, but during that time, I also hooked up with this group from, um, these guys from, uh, Martinique, um, oh, cool. saw me right. and they were called, they had a band called, they were members of a band called Le Viking or the Vikings that okay. kind of broke up in the seventies, but they had this gig at a place called La Canasuch, which is like the sugar cane kind yeah, of, yeah, yeah. and, and I used to go there and play with them and they play a music called Zook. Right. Um, okay. which was really a dope, I, I really love that music. And, um, so I will play with them and they just have me do little solos and shit. But, um, you know, I mean, I was just this kid, they could pay like 20 bucks and like a merguez frit sandwich to at the end of the night. And I was happy yeah. to be hanging out with these people, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. And learning, learning to play kind of that music a little bit. And then, um, but these, these guys that, that saw me on the street, they're like, man, you don't you're wasting your time man right and, right. and you're playing this shit nobody wants to hear like you know you got to have a you got to be in a band you got to sing you got to have dance moves and you got to have an acoustic bass if you don't have an acoustic bass nobody's going to stop <laughs> wow wow <laughs> and they were right man yeah so i got in a band in a band with these guys you know we went to zurich switzerland and we started making money. We had like cool. matching outfits. We had vocal harmonies. We had dance steps. We had like a strong, you know, 20 minute set that we would play and all the people would stop and we get money. You know what wow. I mean? And then we would play people's parties at night and we played some weird motherfucking parties, man. I wow. Bet. Like, I a, bet. yeah, some weird, weird, like weird kind of like uh, uh stanley kubrick type shit <laughs> <laughs> i hear you how long were you over there um you know traveling around europe well for three years but you know we kind of had a group of people it was like very nomadic if you got off the plane or the bus or the train or whatever you go to cafe maze and your people would be there your street right. musician people right, right and you go the because the season was really like from april to october november I mean, I played on the street in the winter. You don't want to do that. No, it's no. not. It's suboptimal. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. So you meet your people there, and then you'd go to um, wherever you're going to go. If Paris was too, if there were too many people playing in Paris at the time, you went to Zurich or Nice or Amsterdam or Berlin or wherever, and you just you know you traveled, um, and. You know, so I was traveling around with that group of people for like three or four years, right. you know, right. and you wouldn't all travel at the same time. Three people would go here, three would go there. You'd all come back. Sometimes, oh, the, all, all 20 people would be at the place at the same time. You'd hang for a week and then realize that there were too many musicians and not, people weren't making enough money and someone right. group would decide they're going to go to the next town. That kind of thing. Very old school, kind of troubadour-ish right. kind of stuff. Love but... Yeah, I spent a winter in Montreal because a lot of the people uh, were from Montreal. And, I, and that winter in Montreal was like six months long. Right. And I ended up getting a gig. And I was the only guy in the band that wasn't from the islands. It was like Jamaicans and a couple brothers from Grenada. Okay. Uh, the uh, drummer and um, bass player were two brothers from from the island of Grenada. And I played in this group at a, a club called the The Rising Sun in yeah. Montreal. Cool. And um and all we did it was like we played the whole weekend and they just had me cuz I could play some licks, you know. And and but dude, this band with these cats like really legitimately playing like the one drop and the boof bath and oh, all that man. stuff and then yeah. and and we had to learn all this music and I could not read for shit. 
thankfully they couldn't either. You know what I mean? So, but everyone was reading the music, this learning the music the same way. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, they were the most beautiful people, man. They were very patient with me. And, uh, and it was like a review. We would have like one night would be, uh, all the ragamuffin guys would come out yeah, and yeah. it was a big deal. The place was filled with people. You know what I mean? It was like uh, a vibe, you know, wow. it was like Tuesday night filled with people. And then you'd have another night where it would be like Jamaican or, or West, West Indies folks, like soul singers kind of thing. And then yeah, another yeah. night, which was like reggae. And then another night was like dub night, you know, and you had to learn all this shit. And then the guy would look back at you and yell dance hall. You had to be the, yeah. you had to do all that right, stuff. You know right. what I mean? Um, and, uh, and anyway, after that, we went back to Europe again, you know, then we went, uh, you know, and, and so you were always kind of like just trying to stay a hundred dollars ahead of, ha of having no money. You know what I mean? Pretty much. Had you gone deep into, um, Caribbean and Jamaican music previous to this or where this was just, this was it thrust into it? <laughs> That was just like jump in the thing, man. Yeah, yeah. And I I played with these guys for a long time, and they, and they were funny, man. They were like, he's just like the basically. I hate to say it this way, but he's like the just this white kid, and uh, you give him his fifty bucks and and his sandwich, and he'll be happy. Yeah. And they're like, I even stopped the guy. I was like, man, I've known you for like almost like a year, and you're still calling me like they wouldn't even call. They call me Gits for like yeah. guitar, yeah, and they yeah, wouldn't even. Yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah, don't bother to know my name. It's fine. <laughs> it's really okay with me. I'm, I'm just, I'm just uh, honored to be here. You know, they were great. You know, and that was because my friend Calder Spanier, who I think you may, re he was on a couple of my Blue Note records, right. and, and he, um, right. and he's was a guy who I learned an immense amount of music from. Uh, you know, he kind of was like Corey Henry before there was Corey Henry kind right, of, you of know course, what I mean? Yeah, like that yeah. kind of level of, of musicianship. In any case, he lived there. So we all kind of ended up in Montreal. But then right. after that, we all ended up back in Paris. You know Interesting. What I mean? and, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then how did you end up back in the Bay again? You know, honestly, folks started getting into drugs and I wasn't into it. Some, yeah. some folks were, yeah. uh, that kind of, kind of put a, a, a damper on things and then i also saw some of the older guys that had been doing it for a really long time and i realized like you know what i, I need to go learn how to play there's some shit that i have questions i need answered right. musically uh and so i ended up back in the bay area and i went to laney college which is a community college in oakland uh and we had great teachers ed kelly and elvo damonte and, and i learned a lot uh from those guys um and then i also just worked jobs you know like yeah. I, I worked for a used office furniture warehouse i i dude i i even like dug ditches like i did shit like that <laughs> literal, and then also played yeah i also played gigs and and i just was really uh focused on really learning and and just trying to become a better musician yeah yeah and is this also the time period when you um, started developing or figuring out the bass guitar hybrid. And I know Ralph Novak made those initial yeah. instruments. How did that um, concept evolve, you know, or come together, I should say? You know, I was actually teaching guitar at Subway Guitars, which yeah. I talked about earlier. And I really wanted to get a seven string guitar yeah. because I really wanted to have those low notes and I really wanted to be independent because I was a street musician, man. I didn't want like to be tied down to somebody else's thing i wanted to be totally free 
to right. just do whatever the hell I, if I wanted. That was my mentality. I didn't own an amplifier. I mean, I had a mouse amplifier. My, yeah. my mentality was just like, fuck it. If I need to just leave tomorrow, I'm going to leave tomorrow and be able to play my own bass lines. You yeah, know? Yeah. I think that was part of it. But I was teaching at Subway and, um, you know, Michael Franti worked there. I know you know Michael. Yeah, yeah, of course. As well. So we go way back. Yeah. And and uh, Al- Alvin Youngblood Hart worked there as well. Oh, wow. Crazy. And, okay. and, and you know, Alex Skolnick? I don't know if yeah, you know Alex yeah. Skolnick. Yeah, I just spoke to so him the we, other day. Yeah. Yeah, he's my yeah. buddy, man. We yeah. went to high school together. I mean, oh, wow. all, all those guys worked there. You know Crazy. what I mean? Like, it was like a real Berkeley scene. And then Michael told me, hey, man, they have a, a guitar here. It's like 1989 when we met. He's like, man, they have a guitar here that I think could be pretty cheap to turn into a seven string. Yeah. Because Michael, people don't know this, but Michael would was an instrument builder, you know, and he, he wow. made basses and guitars. Yeah, yeah. Crazy. Um, and um, so that, so basically I got my first one there. They kind of made me this instrument and it's what I played on a lot of that disposable hero stuff. It was like old right. Vega guitar right. that had a really wide neck and they just figured out a way to make the headstock bigger, made a new nut, a new bridge. And, and I was good to go. So, so did Michael help build that gu- actual guitar? No, it was a guy named y- Jorg Kulo. I remember okay. his name cause it's yeah. such an interesting name and he was a yeah. really good dude. And, 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 uh, I think he was Austrian or German or something, but but anyway, he did a great job. I don't know who has that guitar now. Maybe John yeah. Mayer, because John yeah. Mayer, like, find all my old shit and buy it. Yeah, <laughs> buys it. I noticed he has some of those, yeah. <laughs> Which I'm glad. I mean, yeah. I'm glad he does that. Um, but um, but anyway, then I played that for a while, and then Ralph Novak was like, who I knew Ralph Novak from when I was a kid. Gotcha. Because he used to come to to repair guitars at Subway, too. Yeah. Um, and then he had developed or redeveloped that concept of the fan frets. Right, um, right. And this is like about 1990. He said, you know, I could make you a really cool instrument that would accomplish what you wanted. Right. And then he got, he made me that first kind of seven string that I played for quite a while, actually. So the guitar you mentioned, the Vega, previous to the Novak, that did not have, that had normal guitar frets or normal. Yeah, yeah. Straight fret. Well, I guess I have two questions. One is like, how did you make that work? Was there intonation issues with having the bass strings and the guitar strings? No, I just put super, well, it wasn't, it was just like a regular guitar, but with a low A on it. Oh, I see. Okay, okay. But I put super heavy guitar strings on it so that right. it was it would just be it like just thunk, hold. thunk, thunk, yeah, 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 yeah as yeah, well yeah. as it could, you know. Yeah. Had there been um, instruments similar to the Novak instrument, which was your first uh, first seven or eight, that first one was seven strings, the first yeah, Novak? Yeah, Were there, did those exist before that? Had anyone been doing this? Had anyone been playing the seven or eight string guitar in the way that you did? Well, here's the thing. It didn't really exist, but like there was this, the, you know, George Van Epps, right? Those yeah. books, George Van Epps books. And George Van Epps had a seven string okay. with a low A. And the gotcha. Pizzarelli, Bucky Pizzarelli had one too, but oh. they had theirs made by like, you know, like who knows, like D'Angelico or someone, right? Right, right. And then, then George Van Epps, there was a, there was a Gretsch George Van Epps model. And I remember... See. It was on, there was one for sale in LA at the time for $2,000. Now, 1989 for a guy like me, $2,000 was 10 times more money than I could come up with, you know? So it's like, okay, how how do I do this? So, so I just did it. I had him turn this Vega and that guitar was cool. I mean, I have, you know, memories of learning, you know, how to play this weird shit. And then I played the seven string that I got from Ralph, you know, had the fan frets. 
And I played that with uh, Dave Ellis and Jay Lane. We had our, our trio that was right. like playing at the Up and Down Club and the Elbow Room and all that stuff. Um, and then eventually I was like, man, I want to get more bass range. But I didn't really yeah. understand like like how hard it was going to be or yeah. how hard it was going to be to get the bass sound I wanted because you had to have a really long bass scale. All these fucking things. Like I yeah. created a world of, of misery for myself, basically. <laughs> and, you know, and I had a lot of chops and stuff and I wanted to show that shit off. And, right. you know, I can only imagine if I played a regular six string just how god awful too many notes were going to happen. Right, you know what I right. mean? But, um, but anyway, I got Ralph to make me that eight string and then I learned how to play that. It was a whole different tuning thing and and then i made that blue note record like four or five months after i had right. that thing i really i really hadn't been playing it very long so tell me a little bit about developing that technique were you listening to organ players were you listening i mean where what were some of the things that that you did to accomplish that um because you know you i listen to those records and you know, I, I try to think about how how I could possibly be playing because I'm a bass player first and I play guitar. But to do all of that at the same time, were there anything like how did you practice that, or what was the development like? In in, in yeah, I don't that, know, man. I think I was I was just too ambitious. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but but my friend John Schott, who's a great guitar player. Uh, introduced me to Larry Young, the organist, and he oh, said, "Man, yeah. you, you might want to check this out." So, you know, when you're 25, you're like, "Dude, you're ready to scale Mount Everest naked." At that point, you know, yeah. you have that kind of energy. So I was like, "Okay, I'm gonna try this stuff." So I kind of learned to do the some of Larry Young stuff, uh, learning the bass lines, learned some Jimmy Smith, not very well, learned some Big John Patton, learned that right. kind of stuff, right? Because that made sense. But also a lot of it came from all of those old blues records that I heard coming yeah. up where there's always that alternating bass kind of thing going on. Yeah. Um, and then also from having played bass uh, as well, you kind of know what it's supposed to sound like, even yeah. though you don't all, always execute it very well, you at least kind of know what it's supposed to sound like. Right, right. Um, and... Um, and then so then I was just, you know, like, I mean, I was I was practicing like four or five hours a day and then I had gigs at night because right, I just started right. playing it on gigs, you know. Right, right. And Dave, Dave Ellis, who's like one of the, uh, still to me, one of the most incredible musicians I've ever played with was yeah. like, dude, you're really not ready to do this yet. Right. Was, just so you know, you're really not. Like the other one you were playing, the seventh string is much stronger. You should bring that to the gig. Yeah. But I realized like, if I don't just do this, I'm just not going to do it. Yeah. Yeah, that's maybe, true. I probably should have I probably should have just not done it actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think hilarious. Dave was right. I think Dave was right. We'll be right back after a quick message from our sponsors. So the trio's playing gigs in the Bay Area. How did uh, that turn into to making this record for Blue Note? You know, we had a scene in the Bay Area, like going back to what we were talking about earlier about, um, you know, scenes happening. I mean, yeah. everyone seemed to be in their 20s and maybe early 30s. And, and I mean, we played clubs that were owned and operated by people our age. Right, right. 
And the people coming to those clubs in droves yeah. were our age. Yeah. And also, it was so diverse, the crowds that right. came to the shows. It was be- it was really a beautiful thing. Um, and uh, and we had a scene and, and a community, and, and it supported us. So we were able to play. I mean, I look at my calendars from that time, and I'm like, I wasn't, I mean, like, how did I have all these gigs, man? I wasn't that good, you know, like, honestly, like I was okay, but like, it was some terrifying on the job training and you're too dumb to know how much you're unqualified to do it. So you just do it because the opportunity's there, you know? Right. right. And, um, I look at my, if I saw my calendar, I was like, okay, I have a brunch gig with duo with Adam Levy. Right. Like, and then after that is like, okay, I have a thing at the up and down club with Kenny Brooks and Scott Amendola. Right. And then the next night is like, I'm playing in one of the three or four different, uh, versions of Alphabet Soup. I don't know if you know that group. Oh, Alphabet I remember Soup. Alphabet Soup. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So Alphabet Soup is kind of doing the thing that the Roots were doing, and very, uh, very differently than the Roots. I, I love the Roots, but they were probably doing it in like the late '80s, early '90s. Yeah. And it was, you know, there would be they had it down. There'd be three Alphabet Soups playing one night at different right. places at the same That's time. Funny. You know, so you'd have that. Then I'd have my own group playing, and then all these different things. I play a weird free jazz gig with Ben Goldberg, and wow. it was just. There were so many gigs in the Bay Area got known for having this scene right. that was really had a lot of um, overlap with all kinds of music. But at the heart of it, it was it was that kind of East Bay funk yeah. thing, which we didn't even know that. We were just like, oh, just play something funky. Right. All right, let's do, what, let's do a funky kind of song. Oh, okay. All right. Well, they want to hear another funky tune. All right, let's do a funky tune. And I was playing with Jay Lane, who's one of the funkiest motherfuckers to ever sit behind a kit. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, now, again, yeah. lucky. I got lucky. So we had this band. We were selling out this club, The Elbow Room. Yeah. And, uh, and then the record companies were just got wind of what was going on in the Bay Area. There's a band called the Brown Fellinis that were really cool. Uh, yeah, I was going to mention and, uh, them, yeah. And they were the first ones to kind of come out with a thing. They were doing it a couple of years before anyone else was. They kind of were yeah. the pioneers in terms of getting the scene up and, and running. Yeah. And then there was the Midnight Voices and then Alphabet Soup and then my group. And then all these groups came on the scene and just started slapping. I mean, right, and there right. were... It was like a perfect storm because there was audience, there were clubs, it was an affordable place to live, San Francisco Bay Area, if you can imagine yeah. that. Right. Um, normal people could could live there and figure out what they were going to do with their lives, you know? Right. Um, and, uh, you know, basically, like, we had the guy from Warner Brothers come in one night to the gig, and the right. next night, you know, the next night, Bruce Lundvall came to the gig, and yeah. all these people wanted to sign the band, you know, they and they wanted to sign everybody there, you know, like, yeah. TJ Kirk got signed to, to Warner Brothers, you know, yeah, and then yeah. and then Bruce Lundvall signed, you know, I ended up signing with Blue Note, and, you know, I mean, I would just be playing a gig, man, and, and Tuck Andrus was sitting in the front row, Tuck uh-huh. and Patty. Yeah. Like at a little a little club, the up and down club. I was just like, dude, am I in a dream? What the hell's happening? What the hell right, is Tuck right. Andrus doing at my sad little fucking gig, man? <laughs> you know? <laughs> like really, you know? Uh but um but anyway, man, so it just happened yeah. that way and we got offers from a bunch of labels and including Interscope Records. <laughs> wow, crazy. <laughs> Which they were really really cool. Thank you.
so I was aware of all this stuff. I mean, I was, you know, a teenager at that time, but I also had like kind of chased a girl out to Santa Cruz and was hip to all of these bands and was like coming to a lot of these. Wherever, oh, when I could get, get the fuck in, out of here. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I was probably 18, you know, and this would have been the early 90s. But um, okay, and, and wow, I, I love it. I'm sure I saw I saw you, uh, you know, various times. But that music scene was was really cool because, like, I, I was from the East Coast, from from New York and Boston, but we didn't have. I mean, it was very unique what was going on in the Bay Area, um, and what you were doing specifically for a guy like me who's playing guitar and trying to learn that was like, you know, pretty mind blowing. So like all of my, I came back. I remember coming back and telling all my friends, and that was when we buy the CDs. So I right, had like yeah, your CD that. and the Brown Fellinis <laughs> and Alphabet too. I had a whole stack of CDs that are all these groups that you're talking about. Um, yeah. So yeah, I was, I was a fan of all this stuff. But I also remember meeting you in um, Northampton. Oh yeah. Yeah. And then I went to I college you were, there. Yeah. And you were very, you were probably in your early twenties. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, or maybe 20. Yeah, I, I don't know, like, but we probably had like played. 20. Yeah, it was like me, Scott, probably Dave Ellis, and and probably just the trio. We had played the Iron Horse. The Iron Horse. And I we saw were, you there and, with their, their band and also with TJ Kirk. With TJ Kirk. Okay, yeah, yeah those yeah. were the days, man. Yeah, man. Um, but I remember seeing you in this cafe and you were, t- you were telling me all about Yusef Latif was your teacher. I was like, what? Yeah. Yeah. How is that possible? Like it blew my mind. I was like, damn, maybe I should fucking quit this shit and go to school. <laughs> that's that's why, I mean, I never would have ended up in Western Massachusetts, which I ended up loving, by the way, once I was there. But I went there, to- by the way, you have an incredible memory. But um, yeah, I did not think you'd remember that. But yeah, I was. I went there to study with Yousef and it was such an incredible opportunity because it was like a lot of people didn't even really know that he was there or let alone like who he really was, you know? And I, I wow. got to study with him for four years and, uh, got Dude, to hang that's out so with heavy. him. Oh man. He, and he was just, not only was he the greatest teacher, but the greatest person ever. And just the most wow. amazing presence and, uh, was just oh, so, I'm so inspired. jealous, man. Very, very fortunate. Adam Dorn knew him because his dad produced a bunch yeah, of his records. Yeah, Joel Dorn. I mean, that was you yeah. know, that was all those classic recordings, man. Those he was a big part of Yousef's thing, and he lived in Northampton also. Coltrane, you know, was all about Yousef. I mean, Yousef taught so many of the great players that that yeah. are all household names. Um, yeah, the Gentle Giant album, like his psychedelic, like funk records. He oh yeah, a, man. Duo with Elvin Jones, that Into Something album. I mean, there's so many amazing Yousef albums. I know why I was so impressed when you told me Yousef was teaching there because I had that book at the time that I was working out. Oh of. yeah, that book. His, yeah. the green book, the big yeah. book. What was it called? Like it was called like the Thesaurus of. Uh, scales scales was, and yeah, but, patterns or and, something and, and like patterns that. yeah and yeah. he had taken all the eastern scales and he'd mo- he had all these crazy shapes he was all he was all into shapes patterns and music and and all of it working in tandem and you know we used to do i was in his his improv class and he would let you take it every semester so i took it every semester for four wow. years and it was Monday morning at like 8 a.m. So it would filter out anybody, you know, like it was all people that who were wasn't really, serious. Yeah. Weren't serious. Yeah. And w- when he found out that I dabbled in all different instruments, he had me 
play the different instruments every semester. So he'd make me like do piano for a semester and then bass for a right. semester, guitar. Um, but the coolest thing was he'd have all the students bring in their own compositions that then the whole class would improvise. And we, so we'd, we'd play the piece and then everyone would go around and play a solo. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah. so he would make everybody write. You know, so you had to you had to bring in new material all the time, and he would write as oh, well. So he so we we were playing original Yousef pieces like every week, like that he would that's write. That's incredible, that man! It was pretty epic. Wow. Now that I think that, and he was all into guitar tones. Like he loved pedals, and he'd always uh-huh. want me to bring my pedals around. And my other friends that played guitar, he'd have us do these like guitar harmony melodies and he'd write for them and be like, bring that. He he didn't know what they were called. You know, it'd be like the phaser pedal and the delay pedal. And he was just so fascinated by by the tones. And, um, Oh, that's incredible. Of course he would be, man. That guy was so ahead of his time. Wow. Yeah. Unbelievable. And a lot of people, you know, he, 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 you know, he, converted to Islam at a pretty young age and refused to play in clubs that, that, you know, sold alcohol or whatever. Right. So more power to him. Yeah. By the time he was in, I think in his twenties or something, you know, that's a lot of people, that's why he didn't become as famous as a lot of other guys is right. he, he just was like, I don't want to do that. You know, I don't want, and he started teaching. He went to Africa and traveled and, but at, so at that time, you know, when you guys were out and, and Blue Note, you know, to be totally honest, probably the reason Soul Live ended up on Blue Note, you know, you were part of this change in what they were doing and they started kind of being hip to new stuff. And I, you know, I credit that to Bruce Lundvall, who I loved, um, yeah, he was signed, the best. Bruce he was, was the, great, the best. He was so cool. Yeah. I mean, we had we kind of had a similar thing where we had a lot of different labels we were talking to, but Bruce was just the coolest. He was the guy that was yeah. actually about the music, and um, they they I think was it Medeski Martin and Wood and and you and a bunch of cool stuff was happening there, yeah. and that's why we were like, oh man, we want to be we want to be a part of that, you know? Yeah, I'm glad. I mean. It it was a great experience because that was like the last of the record guys. Yeah. He was a true. record business guy. He was not a music industry guy. He was about the record business. And Tom Everett was as well. Yeah. I mean, Tom Everett was great. There yeah. was, you know, the problem with, that I ended up having ultimately with Blue Note was just that it was a subsidiary of a much bigger, you know, conglomerate. And that yeah. ended up you know, hog tying them to some extent, I think. Yeah, of course. But man, it, it wasn't it wasn't for good intentions and for for lack of trying on, on their part, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um and 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 I think I'm honestly I don't know about you guys, but I really think that I made the right move in signing with them. And mm-hmm. it dude, I mean yeah. I signed in like nineteen ninety four. It was substantially less money than yeah. the other companies were offering. Yeah. Yeah. But I was like, no, th- this is the guy, Yeah, you know? Yeah, we had the, it was the same for us. And also when we started the band, we were like, you know, Blue Note's the coolest. Like, I remember like being yeah, like, yeah. it was kind of a weird dream that we were like, oh man, it would be cool if someday we could record from Blue Note. So when that started happening and that movement was like, and they, they wanted to sign us, we were like, oh man, we got to do this. And yeah, then Bruce, yeah. And then also Bruce coming to the wetlands and watching Soul Live play with like DOS effects at like midnight and like getting beer, yeah. spilled, beer spilled on his like perfect suit to hang out with us, you know? <laughs> we were like, okay, this guy's cool. 
Yeah, man. He didn't fuck around. Bruce came to the yeah. damn elbow room, bro. He wow, came to the yeah, elbow yeah. room and yeah. hung. He hung yeah. hard, you yeah. know? Yeah, he was a a, a great cat. And uh, yeah, so we ended up doing the Blue Note tour, which is my first time really hanging out with you. Um, right. Which was really fun. I think it was us and you guys. And then was that... It wasn't Medeski Martin and Wood, though. I think it might have been the no. ja- Jazz Mandolin Project. Yes. That's, that's what it was. That's what it was. Yeah. And they had John yep. Fishman in the band, which brought all the hippies out. I, right? Was oh, he, did they? Is I, he, I was he, he the guy? Maybe he was just on the recording. But I know that they had an affiliation okay. with Fish. And, uh, right. That was like kind of our... Which was interesting because... And you probably come from this same school, Soul Live... Well, you know, I was much more aware of like the hippie jam band. I don't know if jam band was even a word at that point, but uh, world. But you know, Neil and Al like coming into it, and it w- it was crazy to hear to see that type of crowd come out and support the music that we were doing. Um, yeah, at the time, but you know, it filled the rooms, and we were like, okay, you know, we can we can yeah. do this, you know, yeah. Uh, but I don't know. Did you ever expect that? Uh, to be embraced by the the jam jam band community? Not in a million years. I had didn't even know what that was. Honestly, I mean, yeah. we went from being this band that was playing, I guess, what people were calling like urban jazz or right. acid jazz or yeah. whatever, yeah. with a lot of hip hop influence and that stuff. And then all of a sudden, that group Fish came to see us at the elbow room right that makes sense probably this is 95 or something i never heard of them you know i didn't know them from adam and and apparently they started playing one of our records at at their intermission and then that got us on that whole kind of that whole thing you know right right that whole universe kind of vibe you know and then how did you connect with um scarrick and stanton which ended up forming um the Garage at Chua Band. How did that come together? Stanton I knew because we had the same manager for a minute, uh, Chris Cuevas, who you may remember. He's he's no longer in the business, but he was our manager at the same time. In any case, so Stanton was like, hey, man, will you play on my record with Skerrick? And I'm just like, who's fucking Skerrick, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and then um, we went down there to New Orleans. This is probably 98 or something like that. And we just hit it off and we had a great fucking time. And, and it ended up being really, really super fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and uh yeah, man, and we've just been trying to do it, you know. I mean, I, I quit for a while because it just was uh, time for me to do some other stuff, you know right, what I mean? Right, but they right. continued doing it with other people. Um, but then we do like three or four gigs a year, or when there were gigs, we we did that, you know. Yeah, yeah. And then the newest album, uh, Calm Down Cologne, I love it. It's super raw. I, and man, oh, the, tone, the tones and Skerrick's tones on it are so killing. He's like, he's like, if you took, if you, if you added even more psychedelics to Eddie Harris, you know what I mean? Like, added he's a got more, that shit going on. Yeah. It's really cool. Um, but I'm curious you, how that, how that album came about. I know you guys did some gigs in Seattle, I believe, and then basically spent a day in the studio and, um, and, and cut a few tracks. Yeah, so we were playing a gig at a place, I think it was called Nectar's, is that right? Does yeah, that make yeah, sense? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. The club, okay. And across the street was the guy, uh, I can't remember what band he was in, but his name is Stone, and he's the nicest dude ever. Stone Gossard, yeah. 
Stone Gossard. Yes, yeah. And so we we played in his studio. Um, so I think we were there for maybe a day, but there was a problem with the headphones, and um, so it, I couldn't have headphones. Right. So I just didn't have headphones. I was sitting in the room with Stanton, and I couldn't hear myself at all. And I did the whole record like that. Yeah. And it was really liberating. Like, so I had no idea. I knew what I was playing from just connecting the dots and knowing what it's supposed to sound like. Um, and, but all I could hear was Stanton. It was actually really fucking great. I like highly recommend it. I mean, it's just flying by the seat of your pants thing, you yeah, know? Yeah. But you're only listening to another person, you're not listening to yourself. And wow. in a way, it's like the ultimate letting go of all that shit whether you want to or not wow you know what i mean so um it was pretty dope man that's it was ballsy. pretty damn fun it just was out of necessity so i was just like all right i'm gonna see if this works you know <laughs> well i do prefer to record without headphones because like headphones definitely you know if i'm playing instrumental you know if i'm playing with like soul with a group for the group of course but of course preferably i can hear myself <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but it sounds super raw and it's super inspired. Like you guys are, you sound like you guys are having having fun and like digging into each other, which is which is cool. And yeah, well, I definitely was digging into Stanton because that's all I could hear, <laughs> man. You know, yeah, which was yeah. great. You know, because it was it was just about like, yeah, man, let me get in his world. You know what I mean? And and uh, it was pretty pretty cool. And are the were the songs? Um, kind of like basic sketches and then you guys improvised or was it kind of just like you know how did the the compositions come together i think we just improvised yeah pretty much just improvised like come up with a yeah. couple grooves and and go yeah and go is that kind of always how that band has functioned um in terms like the gigs and the recordings and stuff is like mostly improvised yeah we get really uptight about what uh, what the tunes we're gonna play are for the gig and then we learn them all we and then we play like two tunes you kind of cycle between trio and and duo and what was what was your most recent formation well the last i haven't really the last couple of years i've just been touring with lucy woodward who's a, a great oh, singer right 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 yeah right. yeah she's the shit she's fucking tough man yeah and so we we um we toured for a couple years um and then you know pandemic just took its the legs out we have a record coming out i think pretty soon but yeah. i won't be able to tour behind it and and i mean she's lives in europe and she's starting to do more like big big band stuff and her own band and stuff and and i'm more gonna just be touring with kurt elling and and i'm not gonna do my own thing that much honestly because right. um it's just uh i think i've like we were saying at the beginning of the thing you know it's like i i got and i got a lot of stuff going on here too you know i've, I've yeah. been working with this guy darren i'll send you his stuff i think yeah. you might really dig it he's a cool. great writer and um and uh, also just 
I've been doing gigs here, like just on guitar, like in this organ trio, and and even like this. I'm not the best drummer, but I have a good feel and pretty good time. So I've been getting gigs as like a drummer in some I love it. bands I love that it. are like I'm like the local drummer that's like not quite good enough, but maybe better than the other guys. Some just a little <laughs> bit, not really good enough, you know. And um and then gigs on bass. So I just been doing a lot of gigs around when it. It happens just in this area, you know. Um, I can't remember where I was, but you and I were at a jam session somewhere and you picked up like the Pandero and started playing something. Oh, yeah. And I was like, holy shit. You had some, I, where, where did you, where did you learn that? Okay, so that shit I really did work on. I'm not going to be an say, asshole that about that. Not, like, no, that no, was no. Not gonna, you didn't just pick no. that up and start doing that. Because I remember we all kind of stopped and we were like, okay, wait, hold on a second. What's going on? Yeah, no, no, man. So I got into that instrument like right around the time where we were touring together on that right. tour. Right, okay. I got into that. And then I think either right before that or right after that tour, we went to Brazil Yeah, uh, with my trio. And I got hooked up i got some lessons down there you know cool, i bought yeah. an instrument and then i've discovered this guy marco suzanu down okay, there okay um who was doing all that shit i don't know have you heard sergio krakowski yet no no he's a bad mf he's in yeah. brooklyn okay he is bad he's taking cool. the whole thing to another whole other level cool. but um but yeah man i studied it a little bit and yeah. i learned some shit on it but it's such a tricky instrument man because it's like really it's really dead but Every time you hit it, it wants to run away from you kind of thing. Right, right. So, you know, it, it, it's really, it like has kind of a built-in like. Yeah. It's like, it has a built-in kind of like. Wow. Anyway, it's got like a built-in little lopey kind of thing that it does. And I actually recorded a record called uh, Patton in Percussion, where I did all this Charlie Patton stuff. Okay. Like all these old Charlie Patton tunes. And I did all the percussion stuff on it here. And I did it to a click. And I played the Pandero on it. And everything, all the percussion on the click was just like boom, 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 right? Right. You play the Pandero and it's just like, nah, motherfucker. I'm yeah. gonna, yeah, you want it to be there, but it's not gonna be there. And I remember hearing it, and I was like telling the engineer, man, I, I gotta try to fucking fix this somehow. And he's like, you don't wanna do that. It's gonna fuck the whole thing up. And of course, we fixed it, and it sounded like shit. I was just like, put it back to how it was before. Right. And it's just one of those weird instruments that kind of wants to do this kind of thing. Right. As much as you wanna play it straight, it's not gonna do that. Right, right. You know? Right. It's like trying to play 16th notes in New Orleans. It's like, it's just not going to happen. It's just going to do this. It, <laughs> it's going to, yeah, man. Or, or bro, even playing with Mike Clark, you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. it's going to be, it's going to be the baddest shit you ever played. And it's yeah. its thing. Yeah, you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's going to move around. Um, so the Lucy Woodward stuff, like you guys uh, write the songs together. Is it kind of a collaborative process putting the songs together it was collaborative but we didn't write stuff we just had arrangements of like uh cover tunes because oh, okay, that was I the see. whole thing oh, you know okay. both of us yeah because both of us were kind of at a point in our careers where just like you know what i mean i was kind of thinking like man i might just hang this up because i just can't really do this and not make money anymore just right and I think she had kind of done her own thing and had gotten off the road with being in Rod Stewart's band for a while as well. Yeah. And I think she was kind of looking for a thing to 
to to to do you yeah. know yeah um and so yeah we just did it and we started to to make headway getting better gigs and everything but um but then the pandemic hit and that kind of just ground zero you got to start all over again you know yeah, yeah. i just don't i don't have a start all over again in me you yeah. know yeah well a lot of people are finding finding different different ways i mean ground zero is fine or starting over is fine if i'm not getting on a plane every two days or sitting in a van you know if it's like yeah. making, making records and doing that it's it's a different thing it's a different and also, yeah yeah because it's you know when you're touring you just don't have time for anything else that's the thing is when you're on the road and it starts to get at you that all you're doing is this thing you it's not like oh i'm going to have lunch with this person and i'm working on this project and i'm doing this like when yeah. you're on the road yeah. you're just on the road you yeah, know. yeah, and you know how it is when you're young. Like you want to, you want to go out there and piss on every fire hydrant. You don't just want to piss on the hydrant. You want to make sure your piss is the the <laughs> highest piss on the hydrant. You know, <laughs> and you know how it is. After a while, you keep going back to these places, and you're like, wait a minute, this hydrant still smells like the piss from last time. What am I <laughs> doing? Like you know, and oh yeah, I know that. I know and that I mean, look, man, we love playing, and I and it, I'm sure you feel the same way. I love playing for the people and creating community that way. And, and yeah. I think it's really important, but it's, it's a long time. And I feel like if you're not the guy, yeah. you're not, you're just always going to be trying to, to, to figure out a way to get to be the guy. And then when you get to be the guy, you're like, I'm too old to be the guy. Right. You right, know what I mean? Right. Like, I don't, I, you know, so it's, um, but then again, no bitterness, no... I mean, dude, it's uh, it's been a fucking full mitzvah to get to do this shit. Yeah, You know absolutely. what I mean? Like, it's like, imagine the 18-year-old you thinking, yeah, man, I I've, I toured for 30 years. I mean, that's... Yeah. The 18-year-old yeah. you would be... would not believe that. We'll be right back after this short break. Selfishly, I'm glad that you're recording and and making music, you know that that I can hear, you know, and I you and you do it. It does matter. Uh, so many people like myself listen to your music all the time, so it's definitely. Oh man, thank and, you. Um, we we appreciate. Don't you do that. It. No, for real, for real. Don't but do. Listen to Blind Blake. <laughs> Don't listen to me. <laughs> but you've also uh, been on some legendary albums, and I wanted to ask you about a couple things. One of which sure. is the Voodoo album, which as you know, affected a lot of people and was like, you know, a huge um, influence on on like R&B music and soul music. And actually I've had Pino on the show and Questlove on the show. So we've talked about oh, how these, cool. these sessions quite a bit, but I was curious, like how did you end up in the voodoo sessions uh and what what were they like you know what was what was it like creating with with d'angelo and quest and that crew it was really cool it was just the three of us it was me and d'angelo and amir and i was yeah. introduced to him as amir at that time <laughs> and um and uh and russ elevato of course the yeah. great russ yeah. elevato Love great russ, engineer yeah. yeah and they're such good people too man back then i mean it was it was just very welcoming and nice and i think it's because d'angelo um saw me on bet because bet had like a kind of a jazz channel where they'd film yeah. people and then they'd re 
they, because they didn't have a lot of content, they would just cycle it over and over and over again. So it was like, I was on like the Conan O'Brien show and all these high right. profile things. It did nothing for me. That BET thing did more for my career than any other thing wow. at all. Interesting. Oh my God. Yeah. That thing was gold, man. That yeah. thing was really gold. So, um, Anyway, um, so D'Angelo, I guess he saw it and, and he called me and I didn't really know who he was. I mean, I had heard his name. Brown Sugar had been out. But again, you know what it's like when you're on, on a, like an album cycle, you're on the road. We were on the road so much. And um, I remember my manager was like, you should go record with this guy at Electric Ladyland Studios. Yeah. And um, it's in the middle of your tour, but the guys are going to drive for a few days and then you can just fly and meet them in wherever it was the next gig, like, I don't know, North Carolina or something. So yeah, I went down there and, and, um, they were super welcoming and, and, um, you know, I, uh, you know, you're that age, you think you're hot shit. And I soon realized that, well, not as hot shit as I thought I was, you know? Right, right. Uh, and, uh, and those guys were really great. And, and at that time, uh, D'Angelo had this real concept of like, man, can you play like really far behind yeah. where we're playing? And I'm like, dude, like I, I'm from the East Bay. Like that's like, I'll have a heart attack if I have to play even on the beat as a challenge. You know what I mean? Right, like, right. Really, so we didn't do it. We just played those tunes. And I had a vibe that I was playing around a bunch that ended up is that song, The Root, basically, yeah. that we were kind of playing a version of that. Um and uh, and I played that for them, and then it just became what it became. And if you know anyone, I'm still waiting to get paid for that. So <laughs> wow, let, let me crazy. know. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the thing I remember the most. Not to be bitter about it because yeah, it's opened yeah. a lot of door, doors for me. Yeah, yeah. But it sure would be nice to be paid for it at some point. Yeah. Someday would yeah. be nice. It would be nice. But yeah. um, but it was still a great experience. And then uh, we did a song, a few other songs as well. And um, and then I just went up went about my life for the right. next three or four years and eventually the record came out uh and but i remember getting a cassette of it and i was really excited about it playing it for the guys in the van you know check right. this out they're like oh man this is fucking great uh this shit is killer and then um then the record came out and my friend called up he goes man you got to listen to this record man they fucked your shit up man Wow. Something doesn't sound right. It was because they took the stuff in Pro Tools and then moved it behind the beat, which kind of created that iconic feel, which actually reminds me a lot of like how Roomba groups in Cuba play or West African um, drum groups play. The time is being stretched, and and yeah. and but everyone knows where the one is at all times. I just wish I could have played like that, but I couldn't. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, those that that song is one of my favorite songs on the record. So, and I can, and it was it was funny because I actually did, could tell. I mean, I was a big fan of yours, and before I even knew the credits, I actually heard that, and I was like, "Wait, is that?" Because it did sound like you initially, even though. Oh, even right record, on! Thanks, I was man. Like, oh, that sounds like sounds like Charlie Hunter. Um, another one. I mean, you've played on the Frank Ocean. How did you get on the Frank Ocean uh, radar? It was he. Oh. He was a fan of yours. 
because my friend Matt Chamberlain was on that oh, session. Oh, okay, cool, cool, yeah. And the guy it. who produced it was a guy named Malay, yeah. who used to come to my shows. You gotcha, know? gotcha. Um, I mean, you know what happens, Kraz, is like, it's just people that are like 10 years younger than me that used to went to go to my shows that yeah. became infinitely more successful than I will ever yeah. be in the music industry. Yeah, yeah, They're like, oh, I remember going to that guy's shows a lot. Let's get that weird guy and, and bring him yeah, in here. Yeah. Like John Mayer did the same thing. And, and yeah, uh, yeah. you know, it, it's nice. It's not my universe uh, per se, right? But you can make any universe your universe because it's just all the music universe, right? So, right, right, and, right. And and it's all a continuum, regardless of what you're playing. What, yeah, what, you yeah. know, even what instrument you're playing, you know, you still have a a feel that you know that's going to be who you are if you're playing even just a silly little synthesizer pattern. It still is going to be your whatever your feel is, you right, know? right, so, right. And the the mayor session, I think there's a video I've seen that uh, is you guys kind of making a song in in a day or whatever. Have you seen that actually? Yeah, yeah. That's I think I saw a little bit of it, but then yeah. I got interrupted and I haven't gone back. And I also don't like to watch myself. Oh yeah, on video, it's, I hate it grosses me too. out. But yeah, that, but that album, you know, is my favorite of the of his. Uh, um, discography, I guess you'd say the Continuum record, which has Steve Jordan on a lot. I don't know. Was Steve Jordan on the track that you played on? Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. I love yeah. Steve. His feel. He is kicked so, my ass oh, all up and down the court, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. And you toured with John as well, right? Did the the Charlie Hunter trio oh, yeah. or was it quartet? Yeah. No. Yeah. We had a quintet. Quintet back then. Okay. With uh, Curtis Folks, John Ellis, Gregoire Murray, oh, and Derek yeah. Phillips. Oh, yeah. And it was some of the funnest music. Yeah. But dude, I lost so much money with that band. I was just like, all yeah. right, reminder, never bigger than a trio ever again. Right. Unless someone else is paying for it. Yeah, I hear that. I mean, that was the soul live concept from the get go. It was like, okay, there's three of us. I mean, then the funny thing is, as yeah. we got more success, we started bringing more and more people and horns yeah. and all that. And then as we yeah, got older, yeah. we're like, wait a second, let's go back and <laughs> shrunk it back down. Yeah, but you, you guys kind of had to do that because when you reach a certain kind of a success, you kind of have to keep growing your brand, so right. to speak. Like, it's not, uh, you guys did all the right shit for for that kind of thing you kind of have to do that stuff you yeah know? there was there was some of it that was good and some of it having like the dj and the singer and all of that maybe was a little extra but i mean i've we we had fun doing it but i think now when i look back at it what was really special about it was the trio and uh, and then right. like a lot of those other things were fun and were great it's one of it's the thing where yeah, also yeah. like we kind of realized we were getting defined by being this trio all of us and all of us had played all in all these different bands and had made hip-hop yeah. records and done all these things and then yeah. like, when you real wake up one day and you realize you're the guy in the organ trio and like the throwback organ trio you're like wait a second that's i'm all these other things and then you try to pack yeah, all yeah, those yeah. things into that and then you're like wait but that's yeah. actually what was like had that had that magic but you also you never know man this music game is it's not like being a cpa or a lawyer or something yeah. where you generally can lead a pretty linear life. This is like you never know what the heck's going to happen. No, this and you is never true. know what's going to hit. And you never know, you know, I mean, I definitely made sure to to 
be as unsuccessful as I possibly could because <laughs> I just kept doing different shit and I kept yeah. changing it up. Right when a band was about to get big, I'd be like, this, this shit's not fun anymore. So I'm going to yeah. do something else. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and, or whatever it was, you know, just yeah. like you, you got to move on. But, but that's because it was me when you're in a group like you guys had, that's a, that's a co-op group and and everyone is is you're making a commitment to ev everyone is making a commitment to everyone else you know yeah yeah um imagine those groups that like have a big hit and oh, they have yeah. to be in that group forever man yeah and oh. always do that hit all the time yeah i think i mean I'm, i don't regret anything that we did but i think there was times you know where but where we all got sick of one thing and wanted to change it and a lot of times when we did change it it may have you know we i think we would have like you said, we would have had more success if we had just kept the lane, you know, at times. But so uh, when you're listening to records now, like what are some artists? I mean, you do you only listen to old stuff? Is there any any new artists or new music coming out that you're that you're interested in? Well, man, I'd have to say I I. I have my people that are in their early 30s, late 20s, and I just like, okay, what do I listen to? Yeah. Send me some shit. Like the butcher guys send me some stuff. Let me check this out. Let me check this yeah, out. Yeah. But honestly, and I love all the music, but honestly, man, I just keep going back to that really early music from the 1920s. It, it just, something about it just is so powerful to me. I mean, I was on a tour, like the last Europe tour I did with Lucy. I listened to Charlie Patton. It's the only thing I listened to. Yeah. Like, I actually didn't listen to any other music. Every day, wow. I would listen to the, his stuff like two or three times. Wow. You know, um, but, but you know, I, I need to, I definitely need to listen. Like, for instance, MF Doom, when he passed, I realized, like, you know, I want to listen to some of his music, which is fucking dumb. Like I should have listened to it when he was around. You right, know what I mean? Right. But, but you know, and also I kind of because I was in hypocrisy and we were touring with a lot of these big hip hop bands at the time. I never was like a hip hop guy. I was always hip hop adjacent. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, right. So I was there when opening for Public Enemy and Gangstar and Arrested Development and Freestyle Fellowship. You know, um, and so. You know that I think that that music is a part of of has informed who I am to some extent, but I would not. I'm not. It's not like I'm Adam Deitch, right? You know what right, I mean, or or right. you. It's like yeah. I I just was kind of adjacent. It's like I, you know, like I my mom is Jewish, but I yeah. you know I say I am Jewish. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> yeah. It's kind of yeah. like no, I didn't get a bar mitzvah. I didn't do anything. You know what I mean? Yeah. None of that shit. But honestly, man. I put on that MF Doom thing and I, and I went for a long, cause I have a dog. So I try to take her for like a three mile walk every day Yeah, and I listened to his stuff and, and it, it just blew me, blew my mind right, actually. Right. It blew my fucking mind. And I think it's just about being in the right space to really hear something. You know, these young people tell me to listen to this band and that band and this band and they don't realize that not only did I play with the people that they listened to, yeah. I played with the people who listen to the people who they listen to. <laughs> right, right, right. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, like for yeah. me when I hear a lot of this it's not I'm not hearing it I don't want to be an old fuddy-duddy guy cuz I'm sure the shit is out there but it's just it takes a while for me to to settle on something that really kind of moves me. 
You know right, what I mean? Right, right. Um, and I'm also, honestly, Kraz, I, I'm just like, I'm not on the scene, man. I'm not uh, a part of the scene. I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I have exited stage right or stage left or whatever. And I don't, like, when I listen to music, I really want, I'm not listening to music because I want to be like the guy that's trying to figure out how to position myself to play with this person or that person. When I listen to music, man, I really want, like, are you going to rock my world like Charlie yeah. Patton is going to rock my world to Joseph Spence? Right, right. Or Stevie Wonder? Right. If you're not, then I, I, I just have to listen to the other stuff because I don't need to listen to this music to try to impress or to try to learn some shit so that I can be like, go hang out with the young people and know the stuff that they're doing that's important to them. You right. know what I mean? Right. But at right. the same time, I also don't denigrate it because I know that I'm past the cutoff age and I can't really have an opinion about their music because I, I, I it, it doesn't matter, you know? Yeah, yeah. To me, to them. Why should it matter what the fuck I think, honestly? Right, you know? right. Yeah, I mean, I'm always searching. I wouldn't say that I'm, I come up with gold every day, but, um, you know, I, I, I try to be, you know, you know, like I have Spotify, I have all these things. I'm always like searching. Are, do you use like the streaming services? Yeah, are you, I, are you a believer? I, I use Tidal. Oh yeah, well, Tidal's I use Tidal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I pay for like the premium Tidal thing just yeah, so I yeah. can hear my old records sound good. I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There, there's stuff out there. You know, I, you know, yeah. it's, it's hard to compare to the stuff that that we grew up listening to, but um, yeah. Oh, I know, but I don't want it to be like a music supremacy thing. I just think you get to a certain age and you age out and you don't speak the language anymore. Right, right. You know what I mean? You, right. you kind of speak a different language. Although, like, whenever I hear Blake Mills, I'm like, oh, that motherfucker's great. You yeah, know? Or, yeah. Or I heard, like, Brittany Howard's record. I loved, oh, I yeah. loved it. Her record um, is great. And, you know, some things I hear, I'm like, wow, okay, this is this is really fucking killing, you know? Or like, I'll just stumble on YouTube on Peter Martin, the great piano player playing some solo Strayhorn thing. And it just almost brought me to tears, you yeah. know? You know yeah. what I mean? Uh, or I'll, I'll see some, you know, uh, it's just, it's just very hard how we uh, hear music now as well. Yeah. How, you know, it's not like this visceral thing anymore. Uh, there's so much noise and yeah. and how are you going to listen like are you listening because it's and and i mean if you're producing a lot it's part of your job to have your ear to the ground and to listen and try to stay abreast and to try to even stay a step ahead yeah it's you have to do that you know um and i mean i don't really have to do that i made a conscious decision not to to make my living that way but you don't have a choice you have to you have to be in that but it's not a it's not a negative thing i think it's what you people like in your position you, you love to do that you love to it's part of the gig you yeah, know yeah uh, for me part of the gig is just waking up and being like all right time to practice because guess what you've been doing this a long time and you still suck <laughs> <laughs> well, if you if you're saying you suck, then it's 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 going to be a rough day for for a lot of us out there. Um, it's, yeah, but it's a rough day, and and you know what? Thank God it's a rough day. Otherwise, yeah. we'd just be getting complacent. You this know, is true. we wouldn't this be doing true. our jobs. This is you true. Know? We wouldn't be doing our jobs. This is true. Um, 
Well, man, I thank you so much for taking the time to talk with thank me. Thank you, man. And, it's uh, my pleasure. Now I got to go practice for a few hours and 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 not suck for a little while. Um, but man, it's <laughs> it's been and I gotta say it's been really um, cool and inspiring to listen to all your music the last couple of days in prep. Oh for man, this. thank you. Um, I'm I'm you a didn't huge, have to do that. It's I, the same I, shit. I wanted to. <laughs> I, so I've been listening to you for a long time. It's just now I got to like compact a lot of it and listening to the new girl. Raja Chua record, and that is Charlie with Stanton Moore and Skerrick, two awesome musicians and great people. Um, and once again, thank you, man. Thank you for taking hey, the time. Hey, thank you, bud. It's good talking with you. You got it, Ta- man. Thank you for you, doing it. Take care. All right. Brother. Take care, bud. Later. See ya. I want to thank Charlie Hunter for being on the show. So cool to catch up with him. What an amazing musician, an amazing dude. Before we go, I'm going to play a track off of his newest record with the project Garage Achua. This one is called The Epic.
Krasno Plus One is hosted by me, Eric Krasno. Executive producers are RJB and Christina Collins. Audio production by Matt Dwyer. Produced by myself and Ben Baruch of 1111 Group. All original music is by me, and most of which are instrumentals from my album, Telescope, under the artist name Kraz. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email krazplus1 at gmail. That's K-R-A-Z-P-L-U-S-O-N-E at gmail.com. Send me some questions. Maybe I'll answer them on air. Send me suggestions of other guests you'd like to hear on the show. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you next time. Osiris.